Scripture says to not grieve the Spirit of God. And uh, I just want to remain in this posture of surrender. It takes us so long after busy weeks of work and games and all the things we do to get back to this place, a reminder that we're His and His alone. But um, in the process of trying to listen to what the Lord is saying, sometimes we miss it. And I don't want to miss it today. Um, Carlos is talking to my ear and he says, I have a strong sense we need to pray for America. And I just had a sense to wait. And uh, within 30 seconds, Sharon comes over and read that passage from Isaiah. So, Carlos, you didn't miss it. And I appreciate that the Spirit of God says, when I said I want something done, I want to do it. And so for all you who responded, and I don't know what you were praying for, Katie, but for all you people that had a sense to pray and to share, let's just keep pulling it up because we don't want to miss it. The Scripture says that we'd be able to comprehend with all the saints whether the length is width, the depth, to know the love of Christ. When you come to a service, we're supposed to come with songs and, and hymns and spiritual testimonies of what God has done. It says, grieve not the Spirit of God. We don't want to grieve Him. We want to see His presence flowing in our lives. We want to get it. I heard of a man get saved during the, during the announcement time because God was working in his heart. And he grabbed the microphone and the pastor said, could you wait to the end of the service? And uh, he says, no, I know I'm not the only one. He says, well, we don't do things. How many here want to get saved? And ten people came up because God was working in their hearts. Jesus, it says, withdrew from the temple. After praying for the man with the withered hand, he withdrew because of the hardness or the insensitivity of their hearts. Just as his presence is here, we can miss it by remaining hardened or we can have his presence continue to be here as we remain sensitive to what he's doing. Listen to what he's saying. Um, Kathy's sitting back there, but often she will get her own little Bible studies as, as the scriptures are being read, as someone is preaching. She'll get her own little Bible studies. And I don't mean a different tangent. God just opens up things. And it's a joy. So if you're ever never getting anything on the message, come and sit over here next to her because it's like God is stirring up and, and he's speaking to all of us and he wants us to get it. So, Father, as we spend time here, I just pray that you would continue to speak to us as we open up the scriptures and continue to speak to us. We want to get it, Father, because we need it and they need it. The places you're going to send us as ambassadors and representatives of you, they need it. This lost world is looking for answers. They need it. Our economic system is in utter chaos. This world is on the brinks of disaster, and yet your lordship doesn't change one bit. Nothing has changed in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You are the one, as it says in Isaiah, that measured the whole universe on a speck of sand, a speck of grain. You balanced the whole universe. Father, we just surrender this time. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Um, Open your Bibles to Mark 1. We've been doing a, a study there. Um, the big game is not on till tonight. Amen, Stan? So, he dares come in the house with green on, so I came in with blue. And that's all the more we'll say about that till we see what the paper says tomorrow morning. <laughs> I heard there's another team in the state that's purple, but I don't, haven't followed them for a while. But we've been starting a study in Mark. That all can be edited, don't worry about it. And uh, I love Mark because it's got great stories of real people and real-life situations where the lordship 
of Jesus Christ came in and made a difference. And John Mark, as we looked at last week, was one of these characters that made some humanly decisions like Gideon and every one of us, that he's an identifiable, I can follow that kind of guy person. And God redeemed him and used him. And and something I noticed last week uh, when I was sitting in the other service over here, um, just how God had not, Pastor Jim said that God had restored him to usefulness. Well, I'm saying he went even further. Because Paul chose Silas and Barnabas as these guys who were the great ones to follow. And John Mark, we're not so sure about. God not only restored him, but he used him as writers of the gospel. Silas didn't write the gospel. Uh, Barnabas didn't write the gospel. Paul didn't even write the gospel. Paul wrote a lot of epistles, wrote two-thirds in the New Testament. But, but God chose to say, Mark, I want to restore you to usefulness and purpose and function. And today we're going to look at function. And, and I want to say this. I want God to, to adjust something in our mentality. The word repentance does mean to stop and go another way, but most often is used to mean to change the way you think, to change the direction you're going with the thought. And Jesus came in and said, the kingdom of God is like, and he was changed in their mind. He said, repent. And it wasn't just about the fleshly things. It's the carnal things. It's the mind. That's where the attack is at. And as my thesis is that people function in their identity from things outside of the will of God. The world systems, the, the identity and their, their, their purposes and their life breath, their life streams comes from things that are not necessarily of God. But if we can understand who we are in Christ, this is the thing that so many great counselors have figured it out. They went back to the word of God and discovered who we are in Christ is what sets us free. And if we can establish our identity first and then our function and then our ministry, this world's going to be reached a whole lot better. And I think God wants us to repent of the wrong things that we put our function and our identity into and get our identity of who he is. Liz Beyer had a great word last week, and I don't know if it was recorded. The essence of what she said should be said over and over again, and that is simply that God loves you for who you are, the way you are, in the purposes you are, in the functions you are. That's what began it. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, and whosoever believed in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was the essence of what you said. That was the New King James Version. The essence of what he said was, I love you for who you are, not for what you're going to do, not for what you think I want you to do. I just want to tell you I love you. And we don't hear that often enough. And that's what God said here in this passage in Mark 1, verse 9. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if we're going to really do a good scriptural study of this thing, you've got to let basic biblical hermeneutic principles apply here. You need to let every scripture interpret scriptures. My study of the scriptures is that not every one of the gospel stories are recorded by all four writings. The cutting off of Malchus's ear and the healing that took place is one of those accounts where all four writers gave their perspective on that story. His crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection is one of those stories that all four gospel writers wrote about. Not every one of them wrote about the same stories. This is one of those passages that for some reason the Holy Spirit says, I want all four of you guys to take out your digital cameras and each take your perspective. When you study and let Scripture interpret Scripture, you get things out of the other person's stories that you might have missed. So I'm just going to breeze through them. 
In Matthew 3, we read this part. And John tried to prevent him, Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it be so, for thus it is fitting for all of us to fulfill righteousness, and he allowed him. Interesting. In the account recorded in Luke 2, or Luke 3, verse 21 and 23, at the end of it, in verse 23 says this, Now Jesus himself began his ministry, began his ministry at about 30 years of age. We get even more in John 1, verses 31 to 34. And John, John the Baptist, bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And then he goes further to say, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Together, we get a bigger picture of what the Father is trying to communicate to us. Let me give you a real brief teaching on baptism. I'm going to shoot through this thing fast. Fast, not as fast as I did the first service. 45-minute message, 20 minutes. Go to the website. I'll post my notes tonight. Read it, study it, chew on it, meditate it. It's not trying to make some kind of dogma so that you can all hang your hat and point your fingers at somebody else. But it's important we get some kind of understanding. We just saw some water baptisms take place today. It's important for us to have some understanding, some grounding of where it came from. Baptism comes from two simple Greek words. One of them is baptismo, and what it means, simply put, real short and brief and amazing, again, look up the notes on the web, it means to immerse. The image that they use, and it's from the word bapto, is to take a piece of cloth and to stick it into something like dye, and it's changed as it goes inside of it. It means to cover wholly with the fluid. It means literally to moisten someone. So let me give you three distinct uses of the words bapto or baptismo. Number one is a mechanical use. I like this. The word refers to introducing or placing a person or thing into a new environment or into a union with something else so that it alters its previous conditions. When we enter into baptism, again, the image of the cloth going into dye, it changes. White piece of cloth, red dye, the cloth changes. We enter into his death, his burial, his resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just a symbolism. It is going and saying, I am choosing to identify with this. And the hope is, when we come up on the other side, do we suddenly lose all of our bad characters and qualities? No. Do we suddenly become a husband that's perfect? A mother that that makes no mistakes? A boss that suddenly goes in and, and gets a raise because he's so perfect? That's not what changes. There's something that takes place on the inward man. It's important we understand that. I wish we could see like what happened with Jesus. And I think that's what the Father wants us to hear today, is that when we go through that surrender, he sees the difference. Paul says, I am determined to not know anyone any longer in the flesh. I want to know them by the spirit man that's in there. Don't judge another person between two times, he's saying. Paul writes in Romans 6, Do you not know that many of us were baptized in Jesus Christ, were also baptized in his death? Therefore, we were buried with him in the baptism into death. So Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. So that's a mechanical use. Second is ceremonial use. It's a symbol to point to the purging away of the sin that was performed. When John the Baptist did it, he ceremonial was saying, when we do this, we are entering into repentance. We're going a different direction. We're coming out as a new person. It was a symbolism. That's why it shocked John to saying, no, no, John saying, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, permit it now even for righteousness' sake. 
And then there's a metaphorical use. Oftentimes, baptism is referred to as Jesus' death. His death is often referred to it. His sufferings are often referred to a baptism. Jesus answered in, John, in uh, Matthew 20, 22 says, talking about the two sons wanting to have the right and the left-hand place. He says, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you shall indeed drink of the cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit on my right hand, my father, and on my left are not mine to give, but to those who are prepared for by the father. So what are the qualifications? Brief and amazing. And again, look up the verses online. The qualification is we must receive Jesus Christ as Lord or Savior. It's not some kind of magical formula. When in the water, came out, everything's fine. It is If you are going to enter into his death, burial, and resurrection, you've got to agree that you agree that what he did paid for my sins. That's why you go and say, I need to be a believer. All believers need to be water baptized. Jesus was. And it's not a trying to be a dividing point. That's not the purpose of it. Second method is water baptism. It's, it's immersion. It's pretty clear that baptismal means to immerse. It's a symbol of a redemptive act. It reproduces Calvary in terms of sight. We enter into his death, burial, and resurrection. My question is this. <laughs> Do you ever bury anyone and throw a handful of dirt on them? When we enter into it, we're saying, if the person who's baptizing me doesn't let me up, I realize I might die. We realize that we are placing our life into there. So I was thinking of Rachel today, and she's a pretty joyful person. Not from my side, I'll tell you that. She is a very joyful person who is always happy. So I saw her smiling. Did you see her smiling? And I kept thinking, man, if she comes up a new person, can you imagine how much more joyful? She may never look any different on the outside. There's an inward man that's being transformed because she said, Jesus, I surrender. I surrender what you called me to do which is to go ahead and do that today. All right. So what can we learn from Jesus' baptism? Number one, it was the moment of decision for Jesus. For 30 years, he had stayed at Nazareth and did what he was asked to do. He was a carpenter's son. He went about doing the duty he was supposed to do. My guess is that somewhere along the way, Mary told him all the things, because it says Mary pondered all these things in her heart. We see it at his birth. We see it at his crucifixion. My guess is that Mary was pondering, but she probably told him about some of the destiny and calling that was on his life. This was a moment of decision. It was the moment when all of a sudden the father says, this is the time where you're going to launch out in the task that I've called you to do. But Jesus had a decision to make. Would he bow down and worship? Would he surrender? Would he say, Father, not my will, but yours? We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane doing that, but this was his moment of decision. He could have stayed in Nazareth. He could have built up a good carpentry shop, started some kind of cabinet shop, could have made his living doing that. See, he needed to just make a decision and say, you know what, this is the moment that the Father has called me to do it. He needed to answer and rise up to the summon that was called before him for the destiny and the purpose. He made that decision there well before we ever see Paul get at that foot, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. and You know what I'm talking about? This is when Jesus made that decision. He's entering into it. When we became Christians, we signed up thinking we were going to get out of something. And all the blessing of God was, none of us knew this. That's why those of us who have been walking for a long time, the songs that we sang today about surrender 
we understand what we're talking about now. As a new Christian, we sing, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Today I sing that song different. And there's a brokenness in saying, I really do. Because, Lord, I've learned how to fight with you. And I've learned how to wrestle with you. And I've heard how to have my way, but I really want to surrender to you. This was Jesus' moment. And the voice cried out in the glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Number two is the moment of identification for Jesus. Very clearly, I want to say this. Jesus did not go through the baptism because he needed to repent for sin. He was born sinless. He was conceived sinless. But his baptism was a baptism of reputation. His reputation was what he was surrendering. His reputation is what he was laying down. His reputation, because instead of being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that Rome wanted to be the next king in Rome, that the the Jews wanted to be pushed in there, he said, I'm going to take on the form of a servant. And three and a half years later, he's washing their feet, and they still didn't get that he had taken on the form of a servant. Paul wrote this in Philippians, Let this mind be with you, and is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not... Think it to be robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself a noble reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was in the made in the likeness of man and being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above all names that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and every earthly one and the ones under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the voice cried out in the glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was his moment of decision. It was his moment of identification. And number three, it was his moment of approval for Jesus. Jesus had submitted his will to the decisions of the Father. A decision that was unmistakably approved. I like the way that Mark records it. He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you get nothing out of this message, get this next point because it's real crucial. Ask yourself this question. What had Jesus done up to this point? He had a miraculous birth. We saw him reveal himself to a bunch of shepherds. We saw the, the tragedy of Herod killing everybody under a certain age. Then we find Jesus 12 years old in the temple talking to leadership. And then we don't see anything else about him except to say that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He lived a pretty ordinary life. He hadn't cast out any devils yet. He hadn't walked on the water. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't performed a wedding at Cana, performing the, the water into wine. He had not chosen his disciples. He had not been to the cross. He had not been buried. He had not been raised. Jesus had not done anything. And yet the voice cried out in the glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We have got to get identity before we get our function. Jesus knew it and the Father knew it. And he said, before you start out, son, I want you to have my identity on you, my approval, my purpose, my love. You are my beloved son. Don't, no, I'm not going to say it after you get everything done. Because then you're going to think it's after something you did. I want you to get That's why I appreciate so much the word that was burning my heart last week. And Liz shared it prophetically. And saying, if you don't get anything, get this. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. But I haven't done anything I know. The basis of your identity is because the Father approves it. The basis of your function is because you're approved by the Father. And the purpose and the basis of your ministry is because you got all those other things done right. This was his moment where he received the approval of the Father and said, well done, before he did anything. 
So those you are have are new Christians, are just starting off, get this one right. Because I've seen warped and disgruntled and frustrated ministers and people in ministry who have never figured this out. And 20 years, 30 years later, they still have their title and they still can't figure out who they are because they never heard the voice crying out in the glory, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the sad part out of it is that that is what we minister out of it and we leave broken and fractured people. Jesus came and we might have life and life in abundance. The father said he was well pleased. It was his moment of decision, his moment of identification. It was a moment of approval. And number four, it was a moment of equipment for Jesus. This was the moment the Holy Spirit descended on him. John's message was one of the acts laid to the root. Jesus began his ministry with the image of a dove resting on him. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. It was an affirmation of what he was called to do. John will baptize in water, but Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. In Luke 4, verse 22, it says, All bore witness to him and wondered at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. And they all said, Is this not Joseph's son? At the end of his ministry, after he was crucified and and buried and rose on the road to Emmaus, they said one to the other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way? And he opened up scriptures. It was the moment of his equipping. And in that moment, the voice cried out in the glory, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And fifthly, the baptism led Jesus to his testing in the wilderness. Mark 1 goes on to say this in verse 12 and 13. Immediately, say immediately. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered. The same Holy Spirit that rested on him, drove him, led him, took him immediately. Immediately he came out of the water and the Holy Spirit came on. He heard the voice crying out in the glory. Then immediately he was ushered off into temptation, into tempting, into this this struggle that none of us can understand. Maybe we should have had him share it, Jeremy. He understands suffering. Satan's goal was to stop Jesus' mission ever before it got started. At the moment of his consecration, at the moment of his approval, Satan's goal was to shut him down. God's goal was to show him something. Something that would affect not only his life, but affects our lives on a daily basis. The Holy Spirit came and Jesus was launched out. Listen to this. This is point number two for you to get if you get nothing else. This is one of those theological things you have got to settle in your heart. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted just as we are without sin. It is so important for you to get it. Because if you don't understand that for 40 days and 40 nights, he was tempted and tested with everything that we would be hurled at, but didn't sin, then you cannot read the other half of that verse. It has no meaning. See, if we think somehow Jesus got off easy... Because most of the temptation, most of the lustful things is really to get us to have our relationship and our identity with something other than what God wants. Yes? That's the goal. So we have got to believe that Jesus himself was tempted in all things but was victorious. Why do you say that? Because he did it without sin. Every time it is written, it is written, it is written, it is written. The ministering angels that surrounded him. He lived among the wild beasts, but the ministering angels continued to be with him. The second half of the verse, if you believe the first half... 
Then the next verse is shouting grounds for you running in in the prayer closet. Therefore, because of that, because we have a high priest who who went through it all and was tempted just as we are without sin, therefore let us come boldly in the throne room of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our hour of need. We're not running into this situation in the prayer closet saying, I'd love to tell you, Jesus, but you wouldn't understand. I go and say, I don't have to understand how you understand. This says that I have a high priest that understands and did it without sin. This says that I have a, an advocate with me. This says that in Romans 8, that as I'm standing there praying, you ever lived to intercede for me. This says that even if, you know, some of these people like me, that the mind starts going fast and my mouth can go, or vice versa, that you have the Holy Spirit to take my words and to change them in a way that you understand them. That's what he was doing in the wilderness. Going through that process to say, I do understand what you went through. Nice guy. Always appreciate what you have to say, Jeremy, but I'm so glad Jesus was the one that went through the suffering. Because I I go to you, you're only going to tell me about the bike that got stolen. I never had a bike stolen. Can't really advocate for me. But we have an advocate. There's one advocate between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in a moment of his baptism received the Holy Spirit, and then went out there proving to us that it can be done. And then came back and says, I'm going to stand there and pray for you. And you can come boldly in the throne room, and I'm going to be there in your hour of need. And I'm going to pray with you, and I'm going to stand next to you. And we're going to get through this thing, because I'm your, the author, your finisher of your faith, and I'm not going to give up on you. Amen? First baptism, then testing, then ministry. That's the order. But we want ministry. And from our ministry and our functions, then we get our identity. But I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I'm a pastor. I'm the head of the worship team. I am... And there we are. And then we get our identity from that. And then maybe, maybe, we allow God to test us. And what comes out of us is pride and arrogance and judgment and criticism. See, if you're right, everyone else is wrong. And God is saying, that's not the order. The order is baptism and then there's testing, and then ministry. And that's the way it is. And all four Gospels record it that way. And if we can understand that, then don't short-circuit the process. Because God's not done with any one of us. And the thing I figured out is he doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't bump us ahead of grade. If we're not done with first grade, he allows us to grow and mature and to keep going through the process. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He who began the good work is going to complete it. I take hope and confidence. Paul says, I have learned to have confidence in this, that he who began the good work is going to complete it. That's my confidence, that he who went through this thing is going to complete it. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but in the middle of the word obedience is the word D-I-E. Sweet surrender, sweet obedience has a cost. It has a purpose. God wants us to die to ourselves and learn to live and trust in him. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The sooner we keep getting that, the easier it is. Oh God, I know you called me to do this. I really can't do this. I know you can't. But in me, you can do it. And I'm going to be your advocate, and I'm going to be your rear guard, and I'm going to, we're going to do this, and we're not only going to get the victory, but I'm going to lead you in my triumph. Which means not only get the victory, you take the enemy right behind him. Colossians says he makes a public spectacle. Triumphing over them. He wants to keep doing it. So often we seek our function before our identity. Even from an early age, most of us discover that what we do determines our value. We're driven and pulled by inner urges, but never satisfied. We get the prize, but we're no happier before than when we first started out. This is true for Christians as well as non-Christians. 
And while we're chasing the world system to determine who we are, a still small voice is crying out for us to come to him to discover our worth. The still small voice is crying out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Though when Jesus came here to reveal who God is, he says, what is, the, what is he like? He's a father who. This is the image he wanted to present to us. This is the image that Jesus got as he became. He identification with the Father is the function and the purpose of what we're called to be. We're created to reflect him. We're created to show his love. It's so important that we get our identity before our function. Jesus did what he did because he knew who he was and who he is. Did you catch that? The authority that he walked in They say, what right does he have? He's just a carpenter's son. He's Joseph's son. He walked in his authority because he knew who he really was. Out of order, we will fall prey to the enemy. Acts 19.14 talks about the sons of Siva. And the answering evil spirit, verse 15 says, But Jesus I know, and I comprehend Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit resided leapt on them, was overcoming, and he was strong against them, so they fled out of the house Naked and wounded. Say, so how do we respond? My first question is, have you come to your moment of decision? The moment of decision to launch out upon your task. We know Jesus did. But have you come to that point? Have you come to the point of surrender? I'm going to tell you this, it's going to cost you something. And what it costs you, very few of you have any idea what it looks like. I was reminded of it today when Josh was leading worship. Josh has a... It looks like a dimple. He, I mean, he's got dimples. I don't want to embarrass him. But he's got a, an extra dimple right about here. When I was ordained as a deacon in a church in 1989, I believe it was, we, it was a Sunday night and I heard a word. A, a word was given. They were praying and talking about things God was going to do. And, and uh, someone even threatened that I'd be a pastor. And I guess that did come to true. And I'd be an evangelist. And in that word also came this wonderful thing. But here's the deal. You're going to be tested in that. And Satan's going to come after you hard. He is going to hit you. He's going to hit your family. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, you're going to get the victory. And uh, the next day I came home from work and there was two of my kids were outside playing by the swing set and there was blood all over the ground. And I came in the house and Kathy was holding Joshua in her arms. And, and uh, I never forget this because he is marked with the call of my life. The calling of my life is on his face. And, and Josh was playing outside and one of those glider swings went through so far that without ever opening it, you could see his teeth. And Kathy was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of you to know whether we pray, because we've seen God do miraculous things. I've seen tumors disappear. I've seen heads and dis, uh, close up. I've seen bones reset. I've seen the dead raised. So I have faith. I don't know what to do. And I had a word. It may seem like simple wisdom, but it really was a word from God to go to the hospital. Because when we were taken to the hospital to get him sewed up, and ended up getting stitches on the inside and also on the outside, we remembered the other part of that word. And we're driving across the high bridge, and I still can see it to this day. And I said, Kathy, remember the word that came last night, that the attack was going to come on the calling that was on our lives. But if we would look to the Lord, he'd give us the victory. And we started interceding in the spirit there. And we started praying, and we took Joshua in the emergency room. And how old was he? I always forget. One year? Okay. Oh, wow. Much younger than I remember. I picture him as being as old as he is today. Almost graduated from college. But I know I'm smart enough to do the math since he was born in 1987. But we went there, and Josh is laying on the surgical table. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. Be courageous. Be bold. He's quoting scriptures as he's standing there. 
And I was reminded of this, that when we say yes to him and we say yes to our decision, all hell will come out after you. And Jesus knew this. And we need to make our decisions seriously. But if you say no, it's going to mean frustration for the rest of your life. When you go and you say, Lord, whatever you want me to do. Um, Dan was talking earlier service about having to choose between a secular job, if I can use that term, or going to ministry. The attacks haven't stopped. And they never will. When we make our decision, when we make our decision, I want you to do it with open mind and open hearts and open understanding. That's what we constantly surrender. That's why when I, when I was ordained as a pastor, I said, I surrender all. And then when I was taken over as the senior pastor, I said, I surrender all. And then when I stepped out of ministry or when I went, when I went traveling, preaching at other churches, I said, I surrender all. And when I stepped out of ministry, I said, I surrender all. And then when I was asked to go back into ministry, I said, I surrender all. It's a constant surrender because I know what the call is. It doesn't just affect my life, the attacks. Because there's a call on my kids' lives as well. You need to understand. You need to respond. Have you come to your moment of decision? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? You can do it today. It's not a hard thing. He's waiting for you right now. But I'm going to tell you this to you who are already Christians. Salvation is a one-time event in your life. You can have assurance of salvation. But surrender is a daily occurrence. It's something that we have to constantly say, yes, I surrender to your will. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. And it's a moment by moment sometimes. It's sometimes making, yes, Lord, I'm going to follow you, whatever. And then reality hits us and we have to say it again. Salvation is a one-time event, but surrender is a constant thing. Have you come to your moment of decision to say yes to what God's will is for your life? Number two, have you come to your moment of identification? Have you come to the place where you're wholly relying on him for all of your life? And everybody said, not yet. But are you continuing to get there? Are you continuing to get to the point of saying, Lord, I want to identify with you. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. Are you buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life? Have you got to that place yet? Being buried with him through baptism so that you can walk with him in the newness of life. Are you counting yourself also to be dead to sin but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord? Have you come to the moment of identification and saying that's what I want? I don't like people talking on suffering. I really don't. I'd rather talk about how God is so good. I really do. I love preaching on the Father's love. But the reality is, part of our identification is the death part. Death, burial, resurrection. The first two really aren't a whole lot of fun as far as I know. But the resurrection is a whole lot of life. Have you come to the place of wholeheartedly identification in him? Number three, have you come to the moment of approval? Have you heard the Father crying out of the glory to your life, not just somebody else, to your life saying, you are my beloved son or you are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. All of creation, in the account of Genesis, all of creation, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. But when man was created, when Adam was created, he said, this is very good. Jesus came to restore us back to that relationship that was broken. So the voice is still crying out in the glory. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. But I've sinned. If we sin, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess our sins. He's just and faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Righteousness means basically right standing with God. That's the promise. So if there's an error in the relationship, it really has more to do with you saying, I refuse to acknowledge that what I did was wrong. But when we do that, we hear the approval with a little clarity. 
He still loves us. It doesn't change. It doesn't change anything. We hear with clarity. He knows how hurt you've been. He knows the hurts you've done. He wants to heal you. And then he wants you to pick up your mat and go home and to walk in the newness of the identity of who you are in Christ and what he says and stop performing to get your function and rest in his approval. What if I do that? Will he still do ministry? I've had people come to my, literally to our house since they come over for Bible study. But God will bring people to your house. We've had people come to our yards drunk, desperately looking for life. And we've had opportunities to minister to them. God will bring them if, when you rest in your approval. What's my point? He takes us on whirlwind trips we never believe, right, Steve? As long as we keep saying yes to him. Number four, if you come to your moment of equipping, Scripture says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an ongoing verb. It's not a one-time event. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is not supposed to be the apex. It's the launching pad for us. It's not some kind of pivotal. You got that done? Yep, got that done. Do you tithe? I tithe. You baptized? I was baptized. It's the apex of our launching pad. It's when the anointing comes on, he's not thinking of you, he's thinking about what he wants to do through you. And it's the reliefs of gifts that we're born with, empowered with gifts of the Holy Spirit, sent out to complete the mission. Have you come to that moment of your equipping? Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He says, ask, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. And gives a whole bunch of illustrations trying to prove that the Father is not stingy to anyone who asks. Have you come to that moment? Then comes the testing. And the testing really is just to stop us as we try to launch out. That's what the purpose of it is. I tell people, if you're getting tested or tempted, it says that the enemy who dares to do that to you sees something inside of you about the purposes of God. Why is this happening to me? All hell broke loose after I gave myself to Jesus Christ. There's a revolution. You are an anointed vessel of child. Listen to this. This is the way I always quoted this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able, but with temptation will also make it a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. What did I miss on there? Anyone that knows that verse? I never noticed it for 25, 30 years. Let me read it in context. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. The evidence of God working in your life is not whether you have your life perfect. The evidence of whether God's working in your life is do you turn to him and looking for a way out? He's faithful when we're not faithful as Anne was praying this morning. He's the faithful one. I'm just amazed. All of us who are Christians are here simply because he's faithful. No temptation has overtaken you during our time of testing. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He's not going to let you be injured. But God is faithful. He's not going to give up on you. But God is faithful. He's going to have you endure it. Sin crouches at your door, Cain was told. But you must master it. I can't master it. You're right. You can't on your own strength. But through our God we shall do valiantly. Finally, go take the good news of this into this world which you find yourself in. Josh, if the worship team would come up. That they can stop striving for their function or identity. That they don't have to work at measuring up to other people's standards. That they too can be complete in him. That they can hear his voice giving them identification. That they don't have to wear Packer shirts in order to feel like they have something to offer this world. <laughs> Sorry, Stan, I told you. He wears Packers uniforms over to my house. 
We'll edit that from the tape, too. I like giving a little laughing gas. I always told that um, before they did surgery. They always anesthetize us. I want the Holy Spirit to do a work right now. Something that I can't do. I want him to bring something into your hearts as I pray. And, and I'll pray. Uh, I'd, I'd rather have you pray where you're at. And if you want prayer for something else, come on up here. But my question is this. Have you heard the Father crying out in the glory? Have you heard it? Because that's the thing that's been the still small voice that's been screaming towards you. That's the thing that's caused you to be racing towards him. That's the thing that drove you to a church. And oftentimes you were met with people and said, I don't want to be a part of this. The Father longs for you to hear his voice. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Father, I thank you that you have a purpose for every single one of our lives, that it's not just a, a mission statement of this church, that every member has a ministry. But, Father, that that's on your heart, that you have sent us as ambassadors. You have commissioned us to be your mouthpiece. We're not only new creations, we're ambassadors as though God were pleading through us, Second Corinthians 5 says. So, Father, we want, we want the world to get the good stuff. We don't want them getting our brokenness and our fracturedness and our judgmentalness and our trying to tell them how to live. We want them to have a relationship with you. We want the life flow flowing through us. We want, as we read a few months ago from Ezekiel, we want the living waters, as Jane preached on, the living waters to touch the polluted areas and bring life. Father, we're asking you, if we resurrender our lives to you right now, which is a reasonable act of worship, the writer says. It's our reasonable act of worship. We surrender. We ask that as we do this, Father, we hear your voice crying out in the glory. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That you penetrate the brokenness, the fractured parts of our lives. And that you would move and have your being inside of us. That the life that flows out of us, the the rivers of living water that flows out of us, would be from you. Not from our denomination. Not from our doctrine, but from you. Your life, the Holy Spirit flowing through us. Holy Spirit, forgive us for times we've grieved you as you tried to speak to us about this. And we rationalized it away or we allowed the the word spoken over us by other people to cast your vote out. Forgive us, Father. Open up our hearts. Open up our ears to hear you. Send people in our paths, Lord, that need to hear this, that we can minister your love. I ask that you would not only empower them, Father, that you'd use them mightily this week. That your kingdom be advanced. That your name would be lifted up. That hell would be plundered and heaven would be populated. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. I pray now that the God of all hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And that you would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.